All right, inappropriate Earl. We're doing the first ever Instagram live from the beginning. Here is the whole podcast center right here. Number three right now on iTunes comedy. So I'm sure my stand-up comedy fans are real happy about that. I know how supportive a group you guys are. And today's, you know, I have a lot of comics. And here's Lois's dog bed right here because I don't want to ruin who the guest is yet. I have a lot of comics on the show. I have a lot of roast battle people on the show. I have a lot of uh, 80s musicians on the show. I had the legendary Vicki Hamilton on last week. And by last week, I mean two days ago by her book, Appetite for Dysfunction at VickiHamilton.com. I don't get any cut of the proceeds. Support my friends. But today I have a legendary figure and I'm going to pan very slowly over. It's a reveal. There's my uh, doll from the jellies on Adult Swim coming soon. See, I'll get the plugs in. Legendary manager in the comedy business. One of the truly good people in the comedy business. Please put your grubby hands together for the one, the only, Mr. Brian Hennigan. Better speak into the mic, though. It works better. I can think of a few people who wouldn't be thrilled about meeting me again. <laughs> so, but that's a t- it's that's the tough part of your job. <laughs> you have to, you know, like when I was going through some drama on roast battle. Mm-hmm. Let's just say maybe I wasn't pleased uh-huh. with how I was being treated. Right. Someone said to me, "Earl, you need a manager." Yeah. And I naively said, well, "What could they do for me?" And they said in one sentence exactly what I needed. You need someone to be the bad guy for you. Yes. Is that why you say some people might not be happy to see you again? Yeah, because occasionally you'll deal with people who, in my experience, the only reason you're ever not good with someone is because they don't fulfill their end of a bargain. Uh, or they were naive in their, let's say, let's say deliberately naive in their interpretation of the bargain. And uh, you have to let them know that they have to fulfill their end, which can be unpleasant because some people, I don't know, some people think they have a lot more wiggle room than they do. Because you're a very kind person, very um, soft-spoken. Yeah. But I imagine like... Uh, I mean, can I say who you manage? Yeah, I mean, I'll, yeah, I manage the comedian Doug Stanhope. And uh, who is someone I really admire just because he seems to, and I, I would say you probably should get credit for some of this, he bucks the system of comedy. Like, he does his own, marches to the beat of his own drummer. Yeah, he f- he knows what he does. He knows what he wants and what he doesn't want in his life and has set about constructing a life that reflects that. Which is, you know, in the world of stand-up comedy, you, you know, when you're a comic, and, and I'll throw myself under the bus, when you're a comic of my fame level, which is basically no fame, uh, you have to, pardon the language, take it in the ass. Hmm. Uh, you have to do what you're told. You have to play where they tell you to play. Uh, and I love how Doug doesn't do that now he's certainly at a higher fame level than i am so he's allowed uh, allowed that uh wiggle room mm-hmm. but even when he wasn't you know as famous as he is now or 
he still was like, no, I'm going to do it my way. Sure. And I suppose that's where I, I don't want to immediately contradict you, but that's where I'd come in and say, there are a lot of comedians that I've spoken to or and, and, and speak to who talk about the, um, the way in which Doug does things, both uh, in terms of content and also in terms of um, uh, the, the, the business side of things. And they always come in slightly with the, well, that's okay for Doug because he's Doug Stanhope. But that, bear in mind, Doug has been doing this for, operating this way for decades. I mean, yeah. I, so I've been working with Doug since, two, I've been working with Doug since 2002. And, and that was, we were playing a barely 100 seat room at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. So the idea that somehow his way of life and the way he does things is allowed because he's at a certain level is not accurate. It's allowed because it's what he wants. Right. But I and, just, and so when I forgive me, that's why I reprimand all comedians at any level, you do not have to do what someone else wants you to do. Um, I don't know. I found in my personal experience, it's a, you, you either do it or they'll work with someone else. Yeah, uh, but that's a choice. That's your choice. Uh, you're right. I mean, and this is why I wanted you on, because mm -hmm. you, you have a perspective that I don't see, the behind-the-scenes perspective. Uh, you know, it, it just seems since there's so many comments, you're right. Ultimately it's my choice to say, no, I'm not going to do this. And bear in mind the one area where I am not representative, I'm not necessarily the best manager to have on is that I only work with Doug, you know, I have no ambitions to be a comedy manager. I don't work with any other comedians. All right. This podcast is over. Uh, <laughs> so, no, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I think Doug is, uh, I think every comic, no matter their style, looks up to him, male or female, because uh, at least on the surface, he does it his way. Um, he doesn't necessarily play the game. Like I see comics who are successful that play the game. Mm -hmm. And that's what I hate. Like I just sure. want to be funny. Yes. I, I just want people to walk into a room and go, Earl's funny. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily care about being on this TV show or that TV show. It's, I want the respect of my peers. And in defense of those comedians, I mean, which I understand, every, I mean, no, no comedian or no artist in any field doesn't want the respect of their peers. But it's very easy to get sucked into like the, I wouldn't say the, let's call, I wouldn't say the Hollywood life, but the, just the idea of like, you know what, I wouldn't mind not having to worry about paying my mortgage every month or not having to worry about rent. And if that means I have to do a, a national tour of casinos, then I'll do it. That, you know, there, it's very easy to get ground up by, by the relentlessness, relentlessness of mere life. Yeah. Uh, so I understand entirely when people, you know what? I just want to pay check and I can pay my bills. Oh, I get it. I mean, I'll sell out when I have to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not above doing a gig that I was like, well, it's not really my uh, normal uh, scene, but mm -hmm. hey, it, it 
you know, it's a paycheck. And I mean, roast battle was really not my, for me, my sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Sit there and look at someone and say, you're fat. Mm -hmm. You're a whore. Yeah. Uh, You know, (laughs) you, you have a big nose. But when I found out, oh, you can get paid this much for insulting people, I'm in. Right. So, uh, you know, I'm being a little hypocritical in that regard. Uh, but, like, what are the changes? Like, you started working with Doug, what, in the early 2000s? 2002. And what, in the in the bit time you've been in working with him, what changes have you seen? Like, in 2002, like, Last Comic Standing was kind of be a, a big thing, and... And now it seems to be, uh, you know, it's, you, you needed TV shows back then. To, sure. But now it seems like it's never been easier to make it on your own. Yeah. With uh, Instagram mm. and uh, I think, YouTube. Yeah. I mean, we were all, D- Doug and I were always outside, like when we were, sorry, when we started working together. And I was running a very small venue at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, much smaller than any of the major venues that a lot of your friends will have played when they went over to the UK. And, um, but that venue became very successful because bluntly of the way I ran it. And then part of that was how I had people like Doug coming over. And, uh, uh, so we've always been both the thing, I mean, there's a lot of differences between Doug and I on a personal level, like what we like, what we don't like, same as you and your friends. But, um, we agree on a, we have a similar attitudinal level of not caring about the system. Which I love. Uh, and so I think when you put that together, that meant that when I became more and more involved in Doug's life, I was very happy to join him in a crusade that avoided all of the system. And what, you know, I'm still 20 years in myself trying to figure out what the system is. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I guess in my mind, it's, you know, comedy clubs, you know, a weekend at the so-and-so, uh, the Chuckle Hut in Jacksonville, uh, and you kind of have to do what the club wants you to do because mm-hmm. it's like, hey, if you don't want to do it, a 100 comics will play here this mm-hmm. weekend. But Doug seems to go to, like, bar shows and, like, do his own thing, which I love. Mm-hmm. Like, he's provided the the path to go, you don't have to go to a comedy club and yeah, conform to their, you have to be clean because it's an early show. You can do your own show at a bar or a, a non-traditional nightclub and you can do your act. Yeah. I mean, it's a case of don't let other people set your parameters. Right. You set your parameters. If you want to do a, a like a uncle chuckle funny show with no swearing and you know, nothing controversial. Fine. That's your choice. But if you want to do something else, that's then you have to make that a positive choice. Right. You, you What you can't do is go around saying, I've been banned by every comedy club. No, you haven't. Maybe you weren't that funny. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I think it, it, I think that's ultimately, if you're funny, you can get the comedy clubs or whoever, to conform to you. Exactly. I don't know anyone who's ever been banned from a comedy club for being too funny. Yeah. It's like, oh, this guy or girl swears. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're pretty funny. We we could have them. Exactly. At our club. Yeah. Oh, they're selling out a, a bar down the street when they could be here. Yeah. Oh, they can swear at our club. Yeah, exactly. That type of thing. 
So but, now, now you say like because of the way you ran your club at the Fringe, how did you run it? Uh, very controversially for Edinburgh, every every comedian that uh, played my club made money. Oh, what's that? <laughs> yeah, it's like it's not Edinburgh is a notorious fuckfest for comedians because they're it's very easy for their managers and their agents to say you have to play the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. You have to do it. It's hugely important for your career. And the comedians, because they're just decent people who want to get on in life, go, okay, okay, I'll do that. And then they end up losing a boatload of money, even though they've sold out every show. Because they have to fly over there pretty much on their own dime. Yep. Uh, and I know a lot of LA comics, uh, you know, that's that's an expensive flight. Of course. It, uh, you know, it, it's probably seven, $800 if you do it right. Yep. More if you, you know. And you're doing a month. Yeah. You have to figure out your own lodging. Uh, now I know a lot of people couch surf, so but you know, it's still a clusterfuck. Pardon the language to uh, figure out your lodging for a month. Yeah, and so what I did that was I felt was slightly different was uh, I I got some money from a Scottish beer company called Tenants, and um, uh, I used that. I thought most most uh, let's be honest, most people who get sponsorship money just go oh thanks and keep it, and I. And I, being naive and uh, slightly generous, uh, thought we should fund American comedians to come over here in a way that means they make some money. Not a lot, but the important thing was they didn't lose money. That's right. the big thing. Yeah. So they would come over, they'd spend a week. I only asked them to commit to a week. And they'd get to do the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. And so I had Doug, Dwight Slade... Laurie Kilmartin, Maria Bamford. So that was basically the the four major Americans that I brought over and uh, introduced to the UK. So I'm, I mean, all, all of all of whom I'm very proud of in terms of how well they did. Oh, I mean, Laurie Kilmartin is. I don't see her a lot, but I love her. To She's dance. magnificent. Like, She's what? I mean, anyone who doesn't anyone who isn't familiar with Laurie and her Twitter feed. Oh, it's the best. It's the best. Um, and she's kind of bucking the system for, you know, uh, I think there's a, a stigma if you're an older male or female mm -hmm. comic, it's like, oh, we can't really, yeah, we need a 20 year old who yeah. is a, looks like a model. To, yeah. You know, uh, they're going to get the next comedy special or, uh, you know, she's another one that's like, no, you can, if you're funny buck the system and she has a tremendous work ethos like she's one of those comedians that's out almost every night seems to be out every night um like going up somewhere i mean that that's one thing i can say i do have uh and i noticed the funny you know D doug's work ethic is yeah thing. tremendous work ethic like you last time we talked and you told me his tour schedule canada yeah. australia like you know i thought i had a work ethic going to van eyes to do a gig right uh, but you have to like yeah one of the great things Bert, uh, if you have a manager who can build it for you is in building an international uh touring base is that it means that you have more dates in the year than you can fulfill meaning because you can travel the world so you if you don't feel like playing the states for a year you can do that that's amazing uh, so uh yeah, so building up an international touring calendar for Doug was very much part of a a thing to do. 
Like, how do you uh, game plan something on that scale? Like, uh, do you go, well, Australia would like, do you go, who would, because you know his, his fan base, you know, yeah. you sit there and go, where are a lot of his fans? Well, that's very, I mean, that, that's where social media made things so easy because we'd, you know, that when the fans are coming to you and they're following Doug and you can look at the stats on Facebook or Twitter and see where they are. That gives you a very good feeling about where, is a good, where would be a lucrative place to, to play. And when I say lucrative, I don't mean in a purely financial sense. I mean worthwhile, you know, something that's going to give you sustenance. Right. Uh, so um, the invention of social media was very important for our business model. And uh, do you lump Instagram into that as well? Because yeah. that seems to be the hot. Yeah, Instagram's the hot one just now. There'll be something hot tomorrow. You know, it's, it's just that adaptability thing. Yeah. I mean, Doug, Doug personally loves uh, Twitter. I think, as do most comedians, I think. But um, I like it because it helps me uh, release some of my bitterness about right. the business. Okay, <laughs> it's in that one tweet. Yeah, like I just had a guy uh, today ask me for a tape to play a bar show in Hemet. Oh my God! Wait, yeah. isn't that where Scientology's from? Yes. But, uh, uh, you know, I, now I'm certainly a complete nobody in this business, but uh, I've done enough to be like, I, I'm not submitting a tape to play. a. a it's actually in a roller skating rink. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. But again, that's, that's, where, that's where you go, no. I am getting a thicker skin, or yeah. I, maybe that's not the, the right phrase, but, uh, you know, because I hate confrontation. Mm-hmm. I would much rather have someone else go, no, Earl's not going to do that. Yeah. But at the moment, I'm a one-man soldier, mm-hmm. Brian. Well, you just, again, you, it's like you just have to invent your own backbone. You know, it's, it's a, it's saying no is very empowering. Right. Well, it's tough because, uh, you know, but uh, I feel, you know, like creating this podcast has uh-huh. been my bucking the system. Right. Uh so uh, it's given me great... Uh, well, again, it's you're creating your own system. That's right. what you're doing, is that you're creating Earl Skakel Incorporated. And that's what the brilliant thing, the thing we, Doug and I are both vituperative about is telling comedians, get big on social media. That The social media is the means of production. Well, you know, it, I'll be honest, and I don't know what this says about me. If I did not have this podcast, I would delete all social media. But I realize you can't. You can't. Uh, because it's just... It's, at a certain level, you can. Well, yeah, but I'm not at that level yeah, right not, in, I don't know. Not many are. Yeah, yeah there's maybe know. Russell Peters and... Yeah. Uh, uh, Donald Glover. Yeah, Donald Glover, uh, Bill Burr. Yeah. Probably, Joe Rogan, of yeah. course. But, We're um, all number two behind Joe in the podcast yes. world. Uh, but that's not a bad... Uh, you know, I also like how Joe operates. Like, he yeah. has lesser-known comics on his podcast. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to do that. Yeah. And he doesn't... And he knows who he is, and he's not beholden to anyone. Yeah, he's another one in the Stanhope mold of... No. Yeah. I'm going to do my thing. Create my own world. Oh, i not allowed at the comedy store for seven years. Guess what? I'm going to create this podcast thing. And then, you know, hopefully I can come back to the comedy store at some point. Mm-hmm. And then that all worked out once a certain individual was 
Oh, I remember those days. I remember, cause I remember, I remember going up to the comedy store because um, for various reasons, Doug had never played. I'd stopped playing the the major comedy stores in LA, and uh, and um, and I remember going into the comedy store to sound them out about Doug doing a show there, and I we went into the. They showed me. They showed me the belly room. And they showed me the, the original room. And I said, "Is this? Is this the biggest? Is this?" I said, "No, I've got the main room." I said, "Can I see that?" And th- this is going back like seven, I think six, seven years. And th- I, we went in, and there was dust on the table. I, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think the room had been used in, I don't know, a month. It's a different era. I know. And I said, "We'll do this room." And they went, "Really? Are you sure you'll fill it?" You know that, <laughs> and I, and I had no doubt, but it, I was just astonished that it had got to that point. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I would say right around the time you started working with Doug, the two, early 2000s, it was, I, it's hard to explain to people what it was like at the store because it's, uh, it's so different now. Yeah. You know, even on a Monday night, like tonight, all three rooms will be sold out. Indeed. You know, uh, on a Monday night in 2003, you'd be lucky if you had 40 people in the whole building. Uh, wow. Belly room would be empty, uh, except for the Ding Dong show. Uh-huh. Then it would fill up for that. Main room would be <laughs> completely dark, and the OR would be like the bar in Star Wars. Uh-huh. Random stragglers. You know, the comics were very angry and dark because they were playing in front of nobody. And, uh, you know, you had a talent coordinator who, uh, let's just say he had some interesting accounting methods Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and some uh, interesting views on certain uh, elements of society. So now it's like, you know, Doug's probably welcome with open arms. Yeah. Because they get it. Like, oh, we have Doug Stanhope here and Joe Rogan. I mean, everyone we've ever worked with there has been great. Yeah. it's, uh, It's like, I think it's the number one club in the country like i know the seller's a big deal in new york uh different vibe though i mean i've never been i mean uh, the few times i've been to new york there's a great club called the stand yes uh which uh, i like i like how the booker uh, runs that room yeah but i think it's one of those things though which is that comedians because we're talking about comedians here uh comedians are not naturally collegiate people so if you give them a, a a a warm welcoming environment they will naturally help you make it into a lovely uh venue right you know and that's clearly what was lacking before was there was no warm welcome (laughs) there was a welcome but it it was like uh like i remember the first time i did potluck there which is the open mic night uh i saw brody stevens who i now love Uh uh-huh uh but he made an open micer cry because he was hosting Uh uh-huh and uh you know, a lot of people were bombing back then, but this comic had had a particularly bad set. And uh, Brody was like, uh, where are you from, man? And the guy was like, oh, I'm from La Jolla. And Brody was like, well, that drive just got a lot longer. <laughs> and <laughs> now I think it's really funny. But back then I was like, wow, this guy's a dick. Uh, but that was the style of humor being done back then by the comics. If someone had bombed, you just dogpiled on yeah. them to make yourself feel better. Uh, and I remember 
I didn't go to the store for probably seven years after that. Can you out. remember the name of the open micer? No, I don't. I just remember Brody because Brody is very memorable. And uh, I remember a couple people after that open micer had bombed. Uh, there was a comic by the name of John Little and and he was uh, he kind of bailed on a bit halfway through it. And Brody's like, you got to be professional, man, from the side mic. And I'm like, well, oh, that's, that's kind of rude to say that. And and the John looked at him and goes, I'll be professional when you're not such a dick. Uh, oh. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is like it's very confrontational, the room. And and I had seen a few other instances of uh, comics being brought up by uh well if you like comics who suck you're gonna love this next act and like, I was like wow this is i don't know if i'm ready for this i think we've uh, used that one on tour yeah <laughs> uh i was like wow i this is very aggressive so i left the store for a very long time where did you go to be honest with you uh bar shows open mics uh and uh, that probably held my progress back because I got so good at playing shitty rooms mm -hmm. that then I started getting spots at the improv, which is funny because I'm so ingrained at the store now. Mm -hmm. But back then, the improv showed me love first. And I didn't know how to perform in a club because I was so used to being heckled by drunks or getting shit literally thrown at me. And uh, I was like, wow, they're listening. Like... Were you on the road at this point? Oh, I was. Um, yeah, about I would say about four years into my comedy career, I started opening up for people, and uh, you know, I probably wasn't ready to be honest. I mean, but back then, I realize I, I realize now that the the headliners were using me for a ride. <laughs> hey, Earl, you're really funny. Do you want to drive to Idaho? I'm like, yeah. Uh, I was a little green. Uh huh. Uh, but it it toughened me up and you know i i found out that some headliners are a little did, late did you ever is there anyone you don't have to tell me who but is there anyone in the business you're not on talking terms with yes one person oh um, is this well known it is if you follow the roast battle world oh um they uh, i'll tell you off air okay uh but uh they did something uh, they shouldn't have, and uh, it caused repercussions that may not um, ever be fixed. Mm -hmm. So, uh, unfortunately for this person, uh, he's, they are. I don't even want to give their gender, but uh, they are the only person that I truly hate. Now, again, I know you, let's not give anything away, but is this a person? Is it a performer? Yes. Right. It's not. It's not management or agent. Or oh no, management's and agents. Uh, you know, I have a great relationship with. Uh, but up until roast battle, which has done a lot for me, um, you know, they were like, all like, "Hey, Earl, you're you're really funny. Just call us when you get something." Yeah. I mean, literally, they would. One guy said, "Hey, I." I could sign you right now and you'd be the funniest person on our roster. And they, they work at a big agency. But uh, if I take you upstairs to my boss, I guess when they're thinking of signing someone, and I know you know this, that, you know, they, uh, they take, they have a meeting with all the agents and 
people up there and say, yeah, I want to sign this person. And the first question they're asked is, what do they have going on? Yeah, but see, that's where I don't know that world because the only person I've ever worked with is Doug Stanhope. And the reason I work with them is because he is ultimately looking back on it is because I could perceive he was endlessly creative in the world of being funny. Right. Which should be the only criteria for working with a comedian. I mean, that's uh, what I wish it was. I know. But I'm just saying that's so that world I don't know. I don't know that world of. Hey, we need to get in bed with this guy. Is he funny? Nobody's booked a Wrigley Spearmint gum commercial. That's uh, uh, you know, I remember the when it was uh, announced uh, that I got had gotten roast battle. I guess they sent out a thing to all the agencies. He, these are the sixteen people that got it, and I got all these people who said, "Call us when you get something." They all said, "Hey, whatever you need, or we'll help you." And I'm like, "Well." Why didn't you say that last week? Like, yeah. Why don't you help me get something and then you make money off me? Uh, but, you know, that's just not how the business works. No. So. And I get it. But I would think you'd want to, you'd see someone at their funny and go, I could work with this person and maybe get them in. Uh, but they have a model. You see? Yes. They have a business model, which has been handed down to them. And therefore, they don't really have the latitude to do that. I mean, that's me finding excuses for them. But they have be a mistake to think they don't have a business model. They do have a business model. They know what they're doing because it's been done before. And therefore, unless they're given incredibly sound reason to change that, they're not going to move. Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I see it on Instagram a lot where you have these uh, people who have like a million, two million followers and they just post pictures of themselves in bikinis and mm-hmm. I see them get TV deals. Yeah. Or at least at the minimum, a meeting with network a and it's like, yeah. the Jesus. fat Jewish got fucking TV deal. And that guy was doing stolen material. Yes. So like, and people knew. Yeah. Which is crazy to me. It's like, well, here's a funny comic. Uh, I'm not going to say me, but whoever, uh, they're original. They're write their own jokes. Well, but they only have 600 followers on Instagram. Let's go with the fat Jewish guy. Yeah. He's got 12.6 million. Yeah. That, based on other people's material. And the, and the industry knew about it and they still, uh, I mean, that's the frustrating thing for me is seeing stuff like that. Yeah. You know, just, and I don't know what fame is. Like, I guess everyone is a different, uh, you know, like I'm sure to an open mic or I'm famous. Mm-hmm. Oh, he has a podcast. He's, Hugely influential. He's paid regular at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. To me, Doug's famous or maybe famous is the wrong word, but successful. Mm-hmm. And then I, I don't know who Doug thinks is, and maybe even Doug looks up to someone. Uh, I, I don't know whoever he, and then that person looks up to someone and like you know, Joe Rogan looks up to, you know, Albert Brooks or, or whoever. So there's always someone above you, I guess, you know? Yeah. And that's why it's important to know where you're going because you can't depend, you can't, unless your goal is purely ambitious in a sort of monetary or numerical form. Like I want to play Madison square garden. Then yeah, then that's when you allow yourself to be guided by winds that are not necessarily uh, all about becoming funny. Right. 
they're about getting to Madison Square Garden. I mean, that would that would be pretty cool. It wouldn't be uncool. Yeah, I but, mean, I see uh, Bill Burr playing the Forum. Yeah. Uh, I mean, these are not bad things. I'd be down for that. Yeah, but, but Bill- I mean, to, like to me, and like, I'm just speaking for what I want. Like, I only want to be on TV because I know it'll help get me better comedy gigs. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care about the money. I shouldn't say that, but like, I don't. I want fame from the standpoint of it'll get me better stand-up gigs because stand-up's my love. Mm-hmm. I get a sexual high from doing it uh, when it goes well. Mm-hmm. When it doesn't go well, it's like coming early. Uh-huh. I'm not familiar with either of these things, but... <laughs> well, unfortunately, I'm familiar with both. Okay. Uh, like last night at the Comedy Store, it was an amazing show. Uh, it's just like, wow, this is why I do it. Mm-hmm. I made $20, but I right. could have cared less about if I was getting 500 20 or nothing. I would have walked out how I walked out, happy. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are just uh, mercenaries. They want to play Madison Square Garden because how do i get there yeah you know who do i climb over how do i get there what show do i have to get on whose ass do i have to kiss you know so in that sense i like the slow build Mm -hmm. because i don't want to be like that well it's just as well (laughs) though sorry no but you're like you know i can't argue with you but i mean with very few exceptions i mean that's one thing that's fair let's see if you use a, grad- a gradient on, on something fairly unique about the world of stand-up comedy. There are no overnight successes. I mean, I, I mean, I, I can think of, was Eddie Murphy an overnight success? Possibly. Bo Burnham fucking appeared from nowhere and went boom. Uh, legitimately. You know what I mean? Uh, there are very few people who don't uh, put a lot of work in before they become an overnight success. Yeah, I mean, I think people almost look at Seinfeld as, oh, he just came out of nowhere. And, like, but he had been doing it yeah. 15 years. Uh, I mean, Russell Peters is like, you don't get any more successful than him. Mm-hmm. He had been a struggling comic in Canada for 15 years. Exactly. Like, he was featuring, uh, you know, in Winnipeg. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think people just see someone just like their first special on Netflix or Comedy Central and go, oh, they just must have started doing comedy last yesterday. And here they are. You know? I know, but that, again, that always talks to the general public's state of knowledge of stand-up. Right. Like they literally have no idea how it happens. And one of the the the, the vices of the stand-up world in terms of its performance uh, criteria is that you must make it look like it's come off the top of your head. So by as you succeed in doing that, it convinces the general public, wow, he just thought of that right, right. now. It's like, no, he's been working on that this five minute set or hour for the last six months. Right. So um, so it's like but I guess that's the key of a good comic is you make it seem like, oh, you're just stream of consciousness. Yeah. So because uh, I don't think people realize how structured it, let's take a late night set. Yeah. Uh, is you know it's only four and a half minutes but the network is so like you can't say that word you can, you have to you can, four minutes and 30 seconds can't be four minutes and 32 seconds mm-hmm. or else we'll cut you mm-hmm. uh, I, I think they think oh the comics just gonna end when they want mm. by the uh, way it just struck me off my head the uh, 
the whole I think thing about effortlessness and uh, off the top of your head and how it appears that is basically a trademark not just of uh, successful comedians but of su- successful artists in any field and also successful companies uh and I'm thinking even now of uh what the you know the recent um uh uh, happening, shall we call it, with Nike and, oh, right. and Colin Kaepernick, it was to to use a, a you know a, a, an interesting quote, both surprising and inevitable. It was a brilliant move. It was surprising, but it was also in many ways inevitable. How do you? Th- why do you say it was inevitable? Because it was what Nike should do. Right. And uh, so, again, for me, I mean, you must have heard this elsewhere. That's for me is the best definition of anything as being great art or art, even in any sense, something that is both surprising and inevitable. You'll find many things in the world of the arts that are surprising, but they're not inevitable. And similarly, you'll find things that are inevitable, but they're not surprising. It's when you find something that both excites for the right reasons and it also is a natural progression that you go, wow, that is fucking brilliant. I mean, uh, I, 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 you, a lot of love to Kaepernick for, I mean, he's probably ruined his NFL career uh, by taking a stand mm-hmm. that, that he had to know was not going to be popular. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, most of the NFL owners are crusty old white guys. Mm-hmm. I think there's one black, I want to say the Carolina Panthers have a black owner. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, so 31 out of the 32 teams have, you know, essentially what boils down to plantation owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did it anyway. Yeah. And again, it could well be a case of what you might, what you describe as positive mission creep. Like when he first took the stands, he, it was an intuitive thing and he didn't yet have the, the, let's call it the manifesto. But as time progressed, that developed as often happens in, in, in uh, historical movements. So it was a great thing. Uh, and I think that when Nike, you know, sealed the deal with that announcement, it was fantastic. Brilliant move. And again, go back to the thing about stand-up comedians. They made it look easy. Right. They just announced it. Oh, I loved it. It's one of the great, uh, I think it's the greatest ad campaign of the last yeah. 15 or but so But it was also years. the fact they'd they'd uh, they'd uh, sealed all the corners of the envelope because uh, they had a 10-year agreement signed the previous year to sponsor or provide uniforms for every single NFL team. Meaning the NFL can't turn around and t- say, hey, Nike, fuck off. Right. And it, it's, I love how the debut of the ad happened on Thursday Night Football, the opening game where mo- all the eyes are going to be on that game. And yep. It was kind of like Nike saying, suck it to the NFL. It was a masterpiece of marketing. You don't often get to see that. Yeah, I can, the, the, and in one, I literally think you have to think back to uh, the, monumental Ridley Scott advert for Apple. Right. That's how far back you have to go to see something distilled down to one commercial and launched with such succinct brilliance. All right. Well, yeah. 
And so that's why I think, again, this thing about um, making something pure, natural, but also inevitable. That's what, you know, that's why, that's why controversial comedians, people who style themselves controversial, um, are basically on a, on a, uh, on a doomed mission because they're telling you up front they're commercial, they're controversial and they're coming out the gate going, I need to find controversial material. And it's like, no, you need to find something that's funny or you need to find something that annoys you and then make it funny. Uh, but, uh, just saying you're going to be controversial. It's just a, it's just a waste of time. Well, we're going to talk about this a lot more, but we're going to end the Instagram live feed. You got to listen to the rest on iTunes. Brian, where can people find you on Twitter for the Instagram? Oh, I am Mr. Hen at Mr. Hennigan on Twitter, and I am at Mr. Hennigan on Instagram. That's all I care about. And that's all you guys should care about. Brian's one of the best, but we're going to talk a little bit more. But you got, I gave you a little taste. Now you got to go over to iTunes, the Steve Jobs machine to listen to the rest of this podcast I have one hand. all right well, i was gonna I, ask how long you're gonna keep that up i mean you're you've been holding your iphone it's tough it's uh, you know i'm 49 brian i, I know I, I go for as long as i uh, can yeah but i mean the good thing is i mean you can again you just get a little case and have a little tripod and it'll be easy I don't like to do anything the easy way. I, I, get, I gather that, Errol. <laughs> As you can tell, the whole interview, now this is, uh, for the most part, an audio-only podcast. Uh -huh. I'm working on doing it Rogan-style with right. cameras and yeah. whatnot, but that's, you know, that's in the future. Yeah. Uh, I was literally propping up my iPhone with two bottles of water, mm -hmm. so let me return. Very here. successfully. Well, uh, you know, I'm a one-man unit. But I going back to controversial comics and uh, that topic. Like I'm a huge Dice Clay fan. Mm -hmm. As was as is Doug. As is Joe Rogan. Yeah, I mean Dice. I mean, remember seeing him at the Wiltern in 1987, I believe. Uh huh. Uh, right as his, he was ascending to greatness, and that was really. I remember seeing him going. This is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Like wow. Just, he was a rock star. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had known him originally as an actor. Really? Because he was in uh, a very... Not Ford Lane. No, not Ford. I mean, that was a good movie, uh -huh. but like he was in an NBC show called Crime Story. And Crime Story was the first show Michael Mann had done oh, after fuck. Miami Vice. And uh, it was done... I, I didn't know he was in that. Oh my God. It, he was so good in it. It was such a great cast. And I know, you know, obviously I wanted to talk about comedy with you, but the and cast of Crime Story was uh, you had Dennis Farina, who was an actual cop in Chicago. Yeah. So he led uh, a bit of realism to. I could talk Michael Mann, early Michael Mann with you all night. All right. Well, this Keep podcast going. just changed because. Strap in, guys. Uh, for you comedy fans, I might lose you. We might lose you on Michael Mann talk, but you know what? Get your own podcast then. <laughs> yeah, you can have Brian on talk about stand-up. Uh, this was his first project once Miami Vice was just a juggernaut. Yeah. 
And uh, it was based in Chicago. It was, you know, a mob, cops chasing the mob. Uh, very good actor by the name of Anthony Dennison was mm -hmm. the uh, the mob, the good-looking mobster. Mm -hmm. Dennis Farina was chasing him. He had a crew. Yeah. Uh, Ted Levine, who was... Oh, of course. Buffalo Bill. Say no more. Uh, he was a part of the, the bad guys. And one of the detectives in Heat. Yes. I'm a huge Ted Levine guy. Uh, and it's sad that, uh, you know, you say Ted Levine and everyone's like, Buffalo Bill. Sure. Like, he's, his body of work is yeah. hundreds of films and TV shows. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's a, he's a brilliant actor. And, I, yeah, I remember the, uh, yeah, realizing it was him in Heat. I was like, oh, yeah, that's him, the other guy. Yeah, he's very good at disguising himself as, you know, like in Heat, he didn't really look like Buffalo Bill. No, he didn't. Um, he's a chameleon. Yeah. Um, and he was also in Wonderland. Yes. Where he played... Uh, one of the policemen with the John Holmes murder case. Uh, and he's just, he's good in everything, but he was so funny in crime story and dice was, he wasn't known as dice back then. He was Andrew clay. Really? Um, and, uh, now you know, you know what this talks to, this talks to that wonderful period of the late nineties where for some reason, uh, not for some reason, obviously reason that the lack of internet, um, there are shows that are well-known in the States that are unknown in the UK. And people, like, for example, people understand that Gilligan Island wasn't big in the UK because it's years ago. Right. But there are things from the early 90s where people go, what, that wasn't, it's like, yeah, the internet still wasn't a thing then. Right. You know? It's like one of the, you, I know, I know you're into these type of bands, but I have often explained to Americans, do you know that I couldn't name you a single thing about the band Rat? Not, I couldn't even tell you a single thing about them. As you shouldn't. Because they happened in that little, little window where, um, yes, you, were not, you don't expect music to have crossed via the internet, but for some reason it's in recent enough memory that part of you does think that, that people would know who Rat are. Well, in the, well, they were an interesting band. We could just see. This is what I love about this podcast. Now we're just yeah, we're freewheeling. We're here with yeah, we're improving yeah. as you uh, UC beers would like yeah. to say. Uh, they never went over to the UK oh. or, or or Europe that much, so they were really basically just an American fame band. Like, uh, but like Motley Crue did go over there, so it was really just you know, Poison's another band yes. that never really. They were huge in America, and for whatever reason, their managers uh, just didn't either see the need or didn't think they'd be good or, or whatever or to a UK market. But you also have to, again, it's that the internet is so important in this because you you could go back and look at like, like the UK charts and the US charts for all the weeks of the 70s and 80s, and they're, they're entirely different acts. Yeah. And then as the internet arrives, it just homogenizes. What's number one in the UK is number one in the US. Right. Uh, it's just a global thing now. And the, 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 the bands that are big in the US but tiny overseas and vice versa start to just disappear. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there was a band called The Outfield. Oh, yeah. 
who I loved. Uh-huh. Uh, three-piece band, but pop rock, I guess mm-hmm. you'd say. Uh, they were huge. They were from the UK. But the funny thing is they, they weren't really big over there. And then they did the video over here and they blew up in America. And I don't know if they ever really got mainstream success in the UK, even though they were from there. Yeah. Those are the ones that are interesting. Yeah. It's, but that was the power of MTV. Like, yeah. You, you get, and that video still is in heavy, uh, well, they don't even play videos anymore, but uh, their video, Your Love, is mm-hmm. still played. Right, let's, let, let's circle back to Crime Story. Yes, Crime Story. So Dice, that's how I knew of Dice. Like, uh, I remember going to the Wiltern and going, oh my God, that's the guy from Crime Story. Huh. Uh, because I believe Crime Story was still on the air. Mm-hmm. I think it was from 86 to 88. Mm-hmm. But it just cost too much money. Yes. To make, because it was it was a period piece. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the first season's in Chicago, and, and you know, the, the play... Uh, the late fifties era in Chicago, you needed all those cars, you needed the the wardrobes, uh, you know, the buildings, and then they moved to Vegas mm-hmm. for season two, and it's the same thing. It, it had to be incredibly expensive to shoot. Mm-hmm. So, and, and was it during that period that, he, that man made uh, robbery homicide? This would have been, I believe, Crime Story was on the air from eighty. I want to say either late eighty six to uh, late eighty eight. So it was in that time frame. Uh-huh. Miami Vice was starting to decline a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but still very popular. Mm-hmm. And then I think he started making. Mo- he wanted to make movies. Yeah, probably getting sick of TV. Well, the first one wasn't the first movie he made. The one that he then remade as Heat. Right, which was uh, L.A. It was Heist or something, wasn't it? No. Well, Heist was with uh, James Caan. Yeah. Oh. Thief. No, that was Thief. That was Thief. Thief was uh, with James Caan. And it's funny, in Crime Story, there was a fat, chubby actor by the name of John Santucci, mm-hmm. who in real life was a jewel thief. Really? And he was the technical consultant for Thief, mm-hmm. which was James Caan playing a jewel thief. And James, Michael Mann, was, uh, what I love about Michael Mann and I kind of wish comedy worked this way, mm-hmm. is he uses a lot of the same actors. Yes, he does. Which I love. Tom Noonan. Oh, my. Tom Noonan's like one of the best bad guys. Uh, he's the epitome of a working actor. Yeah. But also that scene in Heat where he's sitting on the porch laying out the plans. It's one of my favorite movie scenes because De Niro is like, how do you find out all this information? Yeah, listen, I'm speaking. People have to. There's. I mean, I'm losing. I'm so excited. I love it. The, that moment, that moment when he's laid out his plans and he, and De Niro says, where'd you get this? And he just goes, it's out there. Yes. I, you know, I steal that line whenever. But then De Niro, he, he continues talking and De Niro gives him this look of you better not be fucking with me. You can right. just, t- it's, a, it's a fantastic bit of non-editing where they've said, no, don't cut here. Let the scene where De Niro just keeps looking at him play out. It's brilliant. You might be my favorite guest of all time <laughs> that we can break down a scene with Tom Noonan. Because like, that it bums me out that he's not, and, and maybe he did, and this might be a parallel to some comics aren't famous, but they don't care. They just like doing yeah. comedy. Like Tom Noonan is the epitome of a working actor. Mm-hmm. He's worked for literally... 
35 years mm -hmm. steadily. Right. His IMDb page must be 300 credits. And he's not necessarily famous. Mm -hmm. uh, but that scene with De Niro, I just, it stuck with me. Just the, the, they had great chemistry. Mm -hmm. And just that line of, oh, it's out there. You just have to know how to get it. My other favorite scene, I'm sorry, I bore people about this all Who the time. Who cares? So, it's my podcast. So, so, but I'm going to bore you and your audience is um, the start where you, of, of Heat, where they basically establish in that first scene where the, the over, like, they establish that, they, that they're, use, they're using LA as the backdrop, but it's set in New York. So, <laughs> um, and De Niro steals the ambulance and it, he, he comes down. And he walks, he, he walks through a hospital and he gets in an ambulance and closes the door and then opens it and closes it again because it didn't close correctly. That for me is one of the greatest moments in cinema because everything is like set up like a perfect, like here's the plan, here's right. the heist movie. And it's so super smooth. He arrives on the... On the on on the train, he goes in the hospital. He goes through the ho hospital. He steals a coat. He gets in the ambulance, and then he has to close the door twice because he didn't close it correctly the first time. And it's that wonderful tiny moment of humanity that sets that film apart. And it, the, that film was filmed with it because it's it's a very slick film, but there are wonderful wonderful little moments that are just about, that remind you that these are people. Right. I mean, there's so many scenes like that. Uh, I mean, yes, there's the big shootout and there's the great acting. Uh, you know, there's another actor that Michael Mann used in pretty much everything. And this is going so deep. Go on. I can only explain as to who this guy is. Uh, if you watched Miami Vice... There was an actor who he's the only person in Miami, Miami Vice to play two people. He was mm -hmm. killed in the pilot, uh, but then they brought him back. His Izzy, the scheming uh, informant, he was always scamming. So and the scheming. same character was killed in the pilot. No, it was in the pilot, and this is going. I'm probably losing ninety percent of the audience to talk about the Miami Vice pilot in '84, but. Uh, at the end of the pilot, uh, a trans and not a transvestite. He dressed in drag to kill Crockett, and Crockett shot him. But he was such a good actor that they brought him back uh, later on. Has the scheming uh, confidential informant is he? Mm -hmm. He'd be the guy they would always use to, you know, get dirt on the Cuban drug lords. Mm -hmm. But in Heat, there's a very quick scene with Izzy where Val Kilmer goes in to buy the uh, musician, the mm -hmm. uh, the ammunition blast. Oh, that's him? Yeah. I love that guy. But the scene, he doesn't even, I think he says one word, like driver's license. And yep. they show him looking at the driver's license. And it's just that quick scene of he looks back up at Val Kilmer like, is this really you? Because it's obviously a fake driver's license because he didn't, you know, buy the stuff with. And there's so many scenes like that in Heat where it made the, yes. it makes the move. Yes, exactly. His ability to capture these tiny. Again, it's interesting. You say he looks back up because in my head, I've always thought of that scene, 
with Izzy, now as I now know him, where Val Kilmer hands over his license, and I've always thought he doesn't even look at him. He kind of like he raises his head, but he's got these thick bottle glasses on. Right. And it's basically showing that buying this shit is easy. Yeah, but it but it's such like most people who aren't like film buffs like you and I, like, oh, this is a meaningless scene. It, it, you you probably didn't need that scene necessarily in a two and a half hour movie, but they kept it in there. Another one little moment. Again, we're talking like little moments. I love this. Okay, I'll tell you this other little moment, my favorite. It's it's one of the greatest lines. It's like a David Mamet delivered when David Mamet was great. A David Mamet bit of dialogue followed by one of these moments, which is after the unsuccessful ambush organized by William Fechner. And so Robert De Niro has almost been killed by William Fechner, who's the bank manager at the start of Dank the Dark Knight. And um, he calls him up and they have an exchange and... uh, uh, William Feichner says, uh, it was a Feichner, does he say, who am I talking to? <laughs> and then De Niro says, who am I talking to? Um, you're talking, I'm talking to an empty phone. And Feichner goes, why? Because there's a dead man on the end of this line. And he, he puts the phone down, slams it down, having threatened Feichner with death. And what they do then that's brilliant is they just cut back to Feichner in his office looking at Henry Rollins, yeah. just like staring at him in shock. And they hold it for just that second in most editors view too long. And it's brilliant. I mean, that's why it, it's, it's his masterpiece. That is the Michael Mann masterpiece. And it rarely gets talked about like, you know, some of his maybe bombs, you know, he had a few stinkers who oh. doesn't, like, I have to know. be. I have to be honest. Yeah, me. What was that black hat? Well, I mean, my and I love Michael Mann. Uh-huh. Like, I am a Michael Mann guy. Yeah. Uh, but that Miami Vice movie was oh. horrific. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. Well, uh, listen. You know, we're going on so long that we have to pause the podcast to switch out the tapes. So I'm pretty skilled at doing this now. So just remember, we're talking about Michael Mann's Miami Vice, the movie, and we'll be back in two seconds. We are back. We had took a little break. So we covered off Andrew Clay. Andrew Clay. We're breaking into Tom Noonanville. Oh, yeah. uh, we covered Izzy from Miami Vice. Uh, now, if you're really into Michael Mann, he also did a movie called Band of the Hand. What? Oh my God! It's Izzy's in it. Um, uh, a band lot of, of the band hand. of the hand. It's I want. I forget the. Let me look it up. It's something where Stephen Lang, who might once again Michael Mann used uh-huh. a lot. Uh-huh. He was the DA in Crime Story. Uh huh. Um, he takes five people from a youth home and they live in the like the jungles of uh the bahamas Uh and it's just you know it's a teenage angst type of movie is it lord of the flies ish he was like this guru to them and he's trying to teach them how to be better humans and all i've never even heard of this band of the hand it's with stephen lang um the 
there's a black actor who was in uh, Colors. It's a great cast. Uh, and I think Izzy was in it for a second. Izzy had a cameo in it. Wow. But it goes back to Michael Mann using uh, yeah. the same people. And uh, he also used Izzy for one quick scene in Crime Story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, uh, I, I. so I like how loyal, I guess the point yeah. of this whole last couple minutes is I, I wish stand-up comedy and and Hollywood in general were like Michael Mann and that he's loyal to people. But in, in the defense of stand-up comedy, I think it's a fairly loyal world. I mean, Doug has people he likes to work with. Joe has people he likes to work with. The comedy store, you already said yourself, they'll be loyal to you. Oh, I, you know, every time I go to the comedy store and I see my name on that wall, I get excited. Like, wow, it's a big deal. Right. And, and, and I, I say it whenever I bring up a newer paid regular, you know, there's a lot of names on the wall. So it kind of gets lost in the importance of getting your name on the wall. But for as many names that are on the wall, there's a hundred times more that aren't on the wall. Mm-hmm. It's like getting your name on the Stanley Cup. Yeah. But, you know, I'm really going to lose listeners talking about hockey. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I, you know, Doug's very loyal to his crew. Joe's, I mean, Joe's, you know, like I said earlier, he doesn't have to have Tony Hinchcliffe on his podcast. Has him. Tony breaks out. Yeah. Uh, Duncan Trussell. Yeah. Has him. Ari Shafir. Burke Kreischer. And now all these people have successful podcasts and they have people on their podcast. Indeed. And, you know, it's like, it's like dominoes. Yeah. You know, Doug has this person open for them. Yeah. They get Doug's fan base. And like, yeah. I love that. that. I mean, to a very small degree, I try and do yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's, that means that they're, you know, there's a cliche there, or not cliche, but a phrase, you know, that one, a rising tide raises all boats. It's like... I think in the perfect world, it, yeah. there's enough uh, piece of the pie for all of us. Yeah. Um, but it's good. That's what's great about the success. And this sounds like I'm sucking up. But I mean, of Doug... But uh, and, and and Joe is like these are people who are these are the good guys. Yeah, but like uh, I guess what I love about and I'm it probably seems like I'm sucking up to uh, Joe, who I'm a little more. You know, I think I may have met Doug once or twice in the kitchen. He's always been very very nice uh-huh. to me. Uh, I think he just knows my face. Mm-hmm. Like I have a memorable face. Yes, but he's always he doesn't have to be nice to me. He's like, hey, dude, what's up? Mm-hmm. You know. And, uh, but I just wish everyone would use those two specifically as role models and go, oh, you can help people out. Yeah. And still get yours. You can almost get more because then they want to help you out. Yeah. And not that you you shouldn't help people. Like Joe and Doug don't help people out with the expectation of, okay, you're going to get me a gig down the road, right? No. I can get those on my own. Mm -hmm. But help another open micer out. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say Doug Doug loves helping other comedians more than anything else. Well, I think if you're a good person, and this goes to their stage persona and their offstage persona. Like if you watch Doug's on stage act, you're like, wow, this guy's gotta be like maybe not the greatest guy to hang out with that. I can't think of a nicer person than him. Like always inviting everyone back to the back bar and making them drinks and mm-hmm. and just talking to an open micer like he's their best friend and then Joe's the same way like yeah um you know 
I just, uh, I look up to both of them. Even though I'm older, I think, than both of them. I still look up to them. <laughs> All right, back to uh, Band of the Hand, by the way. Uh, I don't have a red band helping me look up stuff. So, I'll, you know, if you hear on the audio a version. A red band or a Greg Chili. Uh, or a Jamie uh, Vernon. Yeah, uh, Jamie Vernon, Greg Chili. I'm uh, Earl Skakel has Earl Skakel. Uh, band of the Hand came out in 1986. Wow. Um, and it's a movie. I was somewhat right where uh, juveniles who have lost causes are reformed by a war veteran using survival tactics in the jungle. And uh, obviously the war veteran is the great, you know, I never like calling someone a character actor Yeah, yeah. because I think that's dismissive. Uh-huh. I don't like calling a comic an open micer. Right. Uh, but I guess in the technical sense, Stephen Lang Tom yeah, Noonan sure, but, are character actors. Sure, but also, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very snobby, dismissive term because I would, I would um, give you an example. I would say, strictly speaking, Gene Hackman is a character actor. Oh, oh did, did we just say Gene Hackman? We just did. This, we might have to switch tapes again <laughs> because, yeah, you're right. I mean. Because he's in that weird, you know, from a visual perspective, he's not good looking to be a leading man. Mm-hmm. Although he was. Oh, as an actor, he could. Like French Connection. Top five actor of all time. The Conversation. The Poseidon Adventure. Exactly. Uh, but the point is, he was always. A, like, And to use that term character actor, which is, a, is used. And it's, it's frankly got a negative connotation. It's basically saying you can only do this. And I, and I don't think Gene Hackman is any less versatile. And I'll give, here's, this is the example I always give, is any less versatile or more versatile than Emma Thompson, who's much lauded as this Shakespearean, but frankly, her character range is pretty much the same range as Gene Hackman. I mean, I always say when you talk about acting ability, you could put Gene Hackman in Porky's four. Yeah. And it would be good. Yes. Uh, nothing against Porky's three, but it's a little rough. I understand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he's like, and what, probably one of my favorite movies of his is, you know, is Patrick Swayze's first movie, I believe. Mm-hmm. Maybe The Outsiders was, but this maybe at the worst, a second was a war movie called Uncommon Valor. I don't never seen it. <sighs> I mean, it, you know, when you we started this podcast an hour or so ago, I thought oh, uh-huh. I'll just I'll just ask him some standard questions about working with Doug and stand up, and, uh-huh. and now we're talking about Uncommon Valor. I mean, by the way, I need to be very. I mean, uh, I uh, I love film first and foremost okay artistically in terms of the collegiate world i live in i caucus with comedians i'm like bernie sanders or whatever well, but i should have caucused with- but but you know what i mean it's like uh i there's there there is no greater bunch of people to hang out with than comedians full stop uh, i agree uh because we are uh we are the new voices of the world. But at the end of the day, comedians are fun. That's, you know. Well, uh, 
like the end of the world podcast that you right. were uh, so graciously had me involved in although you had to shove me on the stage i was so scared <laughs> i've never been so scared in my life you know i've done comedy for 20 years i've and part of my training in the jungles, the first 10 were playing the worst rooms possible. Uh, so my nerves are pretty calm. There's not many gigs I'm going to be scared to do just because I've done so many bad ones. But when you sat there and said, I'll never forget this, and you probably might not even remember this, you'd grab me in the hallway of the comedy store and said, go on there right now. We need some new blood. And I'm like, oh, dude, I, I, I'd rather just watch. I'd, <laughs> I'd written out. For those of you who don't know what the End of the World podcast was, it might have been the greatest collection of talent that I have ever been, not just on a stage with, but in a room with. You had on one stage, one stage, Bill Burr, Doug Stanhope, uh, Burt Kreischer, Russell Peters, uh, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Uh, I mean, uh, Morgan Murphy. Morgan Murphy. Sarah Tiana. Uh, Tony Henchcliffe. Uh, Russell Peters. Russell Peters. Jim Jeffries. Jim. I mean, Brendan Walsh. Brendan uh, Walsh. And again, and also, it was also that it was like it was that uh, it was that total eclipse of that election. Yeah, because they were all on stage live as this most awesome. In a in the you know. meaning of the word, awesome election result took place. I mean, yes. For those of you, it's, it was November sixteenth, uh, twenty sixteen. It was uh, the the night of the election with Trump and Clinton, and uh, we did an end of the world podcast, which was a sold out main room. Um, I mean, beyond sold out. It was yeah. like, I, it, you know, there's a Springsteen video he did for Born to Run when most of the crowd shots are just an endless crowd. Like you, you can't see the the end of the crowd because it's just like an ant farm of people. And that's mm -hmm. how the main room looked like. You didn't see the back of the main room because it was just it was like an ant farm of every crevice. People were where people go to the bathroom in the main room in the back, people were standing in that hallway just to watch. And yeah. you grab me in the hallways, get up there. We need new blood, Skakel. And I'm like, oh, I'd rather watch, man. And you literally grabbed me by the arm, dragged me through the main room. I think people <laughs> thought you were kicking me out. Oh, some people have asked. Yeah, well, I'm sure. I can think of one person. Um, but uh, and you took me through the back stairwell of the main room and, and just shoved me through the curtain and i'm like <laughs> and i'll just never forget bill burr's face gone and the only thing that saved me was joe rogan going hey everyone it's earl skakel <laughs> and bill's like all right we know I, I think he thought i was just crashing the party right. which a lot of people were trying to do like i gotta get on stage to get my two minutes so that's, that's the other thing i love about comedy is that compared to let's say the world of acting um is that like Joe Rogan, who's let's say in mafia terms, obviously a made guy and someone who's up there. Yeah, all he needs to do is say, "Hey, Earl," and then everyone, every other comedian will go, "Oh yeah, yeah." Right. No, I mean Bill Burr's face went from, "Am I going to kick your ass to get you off of this stage?" <laughs> to, "Oh, Joe just vouched for him." Exactly. And even though I don't know who this guy is, he can sit on the dais. And now. you do, and you never really encounter that in the world of acting. It's like there's there's never that collegiate. Hey, well, Meryl said she's good. 
Right. People will still be like, I don't like her. You know what I mean? Or whatever. Well, could, a- yeah. I mean, that night was so special and the energy in the room was so, it was one of uh, just having that. It's like an all-star panel. Yeah. But also the craziness of what was about to happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember when I sat down, I, the first thing I noticed was there's a girl in the front crying. Because I think Bill... Is that, that when you came on? She's like, oh my God, Earl's here. <laughs> I've never thought I'd be this close to him. Oh. Wow, his dick really is that big. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I had the leathers on that night. Uh, but it was just, I think Bill and uh, Joe were doing commentary. They had MSNBC on or whatever, uh, announcing, all right, Trump just won Ohio. Oh my God, he's 30 points ahead. And, and then... Uh, also, bear in mind... Another thing that Doug kept hidden on the night was that he was dealing with um, his gal pal, um, um, you know, soulmate Bingo, was basically on like I wouldn't say death's door, but something something akin to death's door because she had been injured in the previous twenty four hours. And he had to, he agreed to go on with the podcast because he's that committed. He just didn't want to pull out. But he was so he was doing the whole podcast, knowing that Bingo was like, "Hmm, is she going to make it? Is she not going to make it?" Right. It was pretty. It was pretty intense. Apart from the election result. Yeah, I mean that was. Uh, it was just so many emotions running yeah. in the room of the the. I think the crowd was high off the uh, just the array of talent that was yeah. you know Morgan Murphy. I mean, like so. Much, I mean, like every person on that stage was funny. I was probably the least funny person on the stage. Oh no! Don't say that. Well, there was a couple other people, people said that you shouldn't. Right. <laughs> There's a couple of people I won't name, but like, uh, but it was just and the picture we took in the back after was like it's probably my favorite picture I've ever been associated with. Yeah, you know, just a good picture. Carrie Mitchell, you, uh, Brett Erickson, like everyone. Wait, wait, have you had? Uh, you, but you ought to have Carrie and Brett on. I would love to. You definitely because I love them. Carrie's yeah. uh, one of the greats of the comedy store. Brett Erickson, super funny dude. Uh, you know, and there's not many couples that last no. the test of time in sta- in the stand up world. Not many funny people come out of Peoria. That's true. Apart from Richard Pryor. Well, yeah. <laughs> Him and Erickson. Yeah. And then, uh, but there's not many couples who last in the world of comedy, mm. especially at the comedy store. Believe me, I know. Oh, really? Well, you know, it's it's not Insert the- Insert awkward pause. It's not the uh, greatest place to try and foster a relationship. It just, uh, you know, it just oh. isn't. But, uh, you know, I gave it a shot multiple times. <laughs> but all right, let's, before I get into that, that's an off-air conversation. Okay. Let's get back to uh, Uncommon Valor. Oh, yeah. Never even heard of it. Here's the, here's the cast. Uh-huh. Gene Hackman. <gasps> Robert Stack. Um, Patrick Swayze. Uh-huh. Fred Ward, who, you know, you, you talk about character actors. He's His resume is incredibly impressive. And... You wouldn't think that this guy would be a good actor because he's most known for getting the shit kicked out of him by Larry Holmes in a heavyweight boxing match 
where he virtually didn't fight back for 15 rounds. He was just like, I'm happy to be here. You can hit me all you want. You're not going to hurt me. You're not going to knock me out. Mm -hmm. Randall Tex Cobb. Whoa. He played a, a Vietnam vet. Basically, uh, it's a movie about uh, Gene Hackman thinks his son is still alive in Vietnam. So he gathers his old uh, troop mm -hmm. and they go into Vietnam to rescue his son. Right. They believe is still alive in a okay. POW camp. I don't want to, well, I don't want to spoil the movie so, at the end of it for you. But uh, so it's, it's, it's a movie that just didn't do that well uh, for whatever reasons, uh, you know, but it's Gene Hackman made it an amazing movie. Hmm. Yeah, um, and and he did. And he always sorry. It's like again, but he was nothing wrong with saying he was a great character actor. You had character in mind, and you inserted him in that slot, and he maximized it. Oh my God! Yeah, he he's just so good. Yeah, everything. And another, you know, my favorite movie of all time. And it's a movie. When I tell people, they're like, "Wait, you're about to tell me your I'm about favorite to tell you my favorite movie, movie of all time." Okay. Tell me, tell me yours first. Um, mine's very anodyne and boring. What is it? Two thousand and one. But that's a great. I could understand why someone would say. First of all, I love. Well, it's funny because a character in two thousand and one is in my favorite movie. Whoa. Okay. Let me. Okay. In that case, that character must be Leonard Rossiter. Roy Scheider. Was it Rush Rider in 2001? Don't think so. We're seeing the sequel. Oh, he's definitely not in 2001. All right. Once again, if, Sorry. I, had, if I had Red Band here. You sure he's not in 2001? I'm fairly confident Roy Scheider's not in 2001. All right. Once again. I've got a story about him, by the way. Rather a Roy sad Scheider? One. Yeah, rather sad one. All right. T tell your story while I look up okay. Roy Scheider. Uh, a friend of mine back in Scotland, funny enough, um, before I came out here, um, his the company that he worked with uh got the contract to do all of these um like before even before, before it became such a, a normal thing to have a, like um the making of sequels or not no, the making of like dvd extras uh they they were often commissioned individual shows by channel 4 so channel 4 in the uk would often commission a show about the making of, and then that would end up on the the special edition DVD. And my friend was the cinematographer for the company that got a lot of these contracts. And there's a the the um the um what's the word for it the making of the French Connection was titled the Poughkeepsie Shuffle, which was, so So it wasn't just called the making of the French Connection, it's called the Poughkeepsie Shuffle, the making of the French Connection. So my friend was the cinematographer, was involved in interviewing Roy Scheider. Uh oh. In, uh, at, I think it was at the Sunset, what's it called? Marquee. Yeah. And he said it was kind of sad. Because Roy had clearly had bad plastic surgery. 
and therefore the whole thing had to be lit according to his um, parameters, shall we say. Meaning, obviously, if you're filming something, you want to light people so they can see, see who you're talking to. But because his plastic surgery had not turned out so well, they had to light it in such a way that he didn't look like he had bad plastic surgery. Well, I don't... See, I think it was because I'm such a fan of Roy Scheider. I don't know if he ever had plastic surgery, but oh. as a child, he had a, I forget the disease. He had a very bad disease. Oh, see, and maybe I've been misinformed. No, no. I mean, I, I might be, he might've had plastic surgery, uh, but that's the reason he ended up being so tan oh. because in his mind, he thought being tan made him healthier. So if you look at, um, like, obviously in Jaws, Jaws. he was brutally tan. Uh, and in my favorite movie, he was in 2010 Odyssey, uh. the sequel, I guess. Well, so it's it's kind of related. Uh, but in my favorite movie of all time, which I have an autographed, I'll show you when you leave. Wait, wait so Roy Scheider's in it? Roy Scheider's Okay, it. let me guess what the movie is. You, I guarantee you, you will never guess this. Okay, so Roy Scheider. I know what movie you're going to say. No, you don't. I do, because it's a Michael Mann type of film. Okay. Whoa, in that case. Right, so clearly it's not French Connection 1 or 2. No. And it's not Jaws. No. It's not Outland. No. I don't think he's in that. Uh, but that's a great movie. It's definitely not Outland, because he wasn't in it. That's a fucking great movie, though. Very oh. underrated. Peter Hyams is a director. Oh, very Hyams. underrated. Uh, Roy Scheider. Fuck. Now you're fucking... Hold on. I know. Right, okay. G give, me, give me some sort of clue. Clearly I'm stumbling here. I mean, well, it's, uh, Anne-Margaret was in it. Oh, fuck. Okay, you have to tell me. I don't know. It's a movie that came out in 1986. 1986. So most people, when I tell them my favorite movie is Russia, they think Blue Thunder, the helicopter movie, which is yeah, a great movie. It is a good movie. Uh, Jan Michael Vincent. No, that's, uh, oh, I wish Jan Michael Vincent was in Blue Thunder. Well, well, You're thinking Airwolf. That's no. the TV show. Oh, shit. Motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, but my favorite parody account, this is kind of, now we're really starting to jump uh, all over, but uh, my favorite parody account is uh, on Twitter is, I forget, I think it's Airwolf for Life. It's someone portraying themselves to be Jan Michael Vincent. And uh, when Burt Reynolds recently died, uh, unfortunately, uh, this guy tweeted out, I miss my Hooper castmate. Gonna drink a 12-pack of Schlitz Tall Boy uh, to drown my sorrows because I'm a fucking legend. Uh, so Jan Michael Vincent is in another one of my favorite movies, the surf movie. It's like the surfing Star Wars called Big Wednesday, which is uh, chocked full of uh, great character actors, if you will. But the movie I'm talking about, Brian, is called 52 Pickup. And it's only because... Uh, what did you pick up? It's a great... Here's the plot line. Basically, uh, Roy Scheider's married to Anne Margaret. On the side, he is fucking Kelly Preston, who's a prostitute. 
Kelly Press and John Travolta. Uh, yeah. Um, and there is a trio of bad guys who's blackmailing him because they videotaped him with Kelly Preston. Here, here are the bad guys. I'll say the best for last. Okay. The first bad guy is, I'm repeating myself, but he's a great character actor by the name of Robert Trabor. He's one of those guys, you see his face, you're like, I know him. Um, second bad guy is the great Clarence Williams Third, who plays a coked out junkie. Lot, most people know him from the Mod Squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the original Mod Squad, not the Claire Danes movie. Right. <laughs> and maybe he's a dream guest for this podcast, uh-huh. but he's semi-retired, living in San Francisco. Uh-huh. The inimitable bad guy villain, John Glover. Oh, see, I thought you were going to say John Saxon. I had a bad experience with John Saxon. Oh, what? Uh, I'll tell my John Saxon story because it's very fast. Uh, one of my favorite movies, of, it's a top five favorite movie of mine, is the Bruce Lee movie, Enter the Dragon. Yeah, and he, 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 I think people forget or, don't, or don't even know that John Saxon was like big in that world. Yeah, he's very, uh, you know, involved in the martial arts. Yeah. Uh, and you could tell in the fight scenes, there were no stunt doubles for him. He was yeah. actually, now he looked a little stiff when, you know, you're watching Bruce Lee two seconds later, but I mean, it's like, it's like going on after, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. You're, you can yeah. be a very funny comic, but you're not going to look that funny going on after Jerry uh, or Chappelle or whoever. Yeah. Uh, so uh, John Saxon was a roper, the gambling uh, womanizer and uh, enter the dragon. So one day I'm at my, uh, I think it was my dentist. Mm-hmm. I walk out. John Saxon is walking into my. Uh, this is in LA. Yeah, this is Beverly Hills on Roxbury Drive. Mm-hmm. He's walking into the. It's a medical building, so it's dentists, it's yeah. regular doctors, plastic surgeons, and I open the door for him. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Mr. Saxon, Enter the Dragon is my favorite movie of all time. Uh, I can I get an autograph. And he looks at me and goes, son, I don't have the time. And it's like, dude, you haven't been in something in a while. I didn't say this to him. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it. Uh, you got time. So maybe, it kind of ruined my... Then maybe he had toothache. He wasn't walking in a hurry. Like, I'm sure he had to go somewhere. But, like, I just wanted an autograph. I know, but, again, here's the thing about toothache. You know what? Sorry, Seriously, this fact you mentioned is like the thing about tooth. I once, I wish I could remember where, read an essay about the thing about toothache. This idea of a pain in your head that isn't like you know you're going to an appointment, right? So there's no rush. He's not expecting to get treated quickly. Right. It's not an emergency. But the idea of that pain in your head can just make you a cunt. Oh, I mean, you know, in full, I mean, I've had a root canal. I know what, what it's like. It sucks. But, I, you know, I'm a people reader. I know. Brian, I can survey a situation. Uh, I, he was casually walking into this building. He could, right. I, I mean, I, and I get it. I, I've had, not that I'm putting myself on John Saxon's uh-huh. fame level, but I've had people maybe ask for a picture or whatever when I'm maybe talking to a girl at the patio of the store. Mm. It's like, dude, can you... Uh, I'll take the picture, but not right now. Just right. Beat it. Uh, just kidding. But like, uh-huh. like, hey, can you come back? Yeah. Uh, 
but I was just, you know, just kind of bummed me out. I mean, he could have said, oh, I, you know, if you want to wait, I'm going to an appointment. You know, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, it was kind of a bummer. But uh, John Glover, getting back to John Glover, uh, he was such an amazing bad guy in this movie. And it's being a, a film buff like you are, uh, he, the way he did this role was such flair. Remind Any, us again of the title of this movie. 52 Pickup. Who directed it? Here's the crazy thing why this was not a hit. Uh-huh. It is so mind-blowing to me. It was an Elmore Leonard novel. Uh-huh. John Frankenheimer directed it. John Frankenheimer? Yeah. Wait, it must be one of his... Wait, no, there's Ronan, obviously, but keep going. Uh, yeah, it was before... Uh, it was before Ronan. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, um, but. Which John Glover was in. Uh, very small scene. All right. Um, which one? He played... It was a side... Very, very... Uh, no, I'm thinking Payback with Mel Gibson. Okay, okay. My bad. I, I'm getting so excited to talk about some of these guys. If you would have told me before you came here, you're going to talk about Tom Noonan and John Glover on this podcast. I mean, <laughs> oh, I mean, I'll mention Rogan and Stan Hope. But like, <laughs> let's get I, to the meat. Let's get, I mean, they're opening for Tom Noonan. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, uh, but he, it was any actor who's tasked the role of playing a bad guy in any film should watch 52 pickup to see how that's it's a, done. That's a great, see, that's a great recommendation. Well, it just, it's practical. Well, it, it really could dull. Like if you're if you're an actor and you get an audition tomorrow from your agent that says we need a villain to, uh, to play it slightly over the top but not obnoxious. But you know who that brings to mind again, circling round, Little Bill, Unforgiven. Oh my! Oh my God! And he again. The whole point is, uh, villains have to be humanized, and he's building a house. I think it's his last night, last line. I'm, I was building a house. Um, uh, and, and Gene Hackman just, he just humanizes that guy and then beats the shit out of the duck. <laughs> well, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, you could do a bad guy, like some of the Batman, some of the superhero movie bad guys, you, you just, all right, they're evil, but yeah. like, I don't really. You almost have to feel like that could be me. Yeah. Like in John, like in 52 Pickup, I could see myself acting like John Glover against one person in particular. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but uh, we won't go there. Uh, uh-huh. But like, he, I could see myself being, but I could also see myself uh, as Roy Scheider, you know, okay, you got caught cheating. You're trying to like, you know, make amends with. Is that and, John Frankenheimer? Yeah. But in it, and you know, the, I think it's a better movie than Fatal Attraction, which wow. came out a year later. And it's somewhat of a similar, you know, blackmail and, and cheating. And Does it have any car chases? Well, I I don't want to ruin the ending. Oh, shit. No, no but something happens with the car at the end. Okay. Uh, and it's just, you know, and it's... I, I often wonder why did Fatal Attraction do so well, uh-huh. and, and Fifty Two Pickup didn't. And then there was a fascinating documentary on Netflix. Ooh. God, I, I don't remember the name, but it's about uh, those two Israeli filmmakers who ran Canon Films, Global. Golan Globus. Go, yeah. And apparently, God, I wish I remember. I'm gonna look once again. They were a phenomenon. Well, they were crazy. Yeah, but they were uh, like Miramax. Right, minus the uh, table reads in the yeah. uh, bathtubs. Uh, 
but they were in charge of that film. Right. And in this documentary, they said, listen, we made a lot of films that should have been better, but if it didn't involve Chuck Norris or Jean-Claude Van Damme, we didn't really care. Right. Like we would just put out things and, and so then it goes, oh, because apparently if you walked into the Golden Globus uh, office, it, there'd be a pile of scripts for Chuck Norris, a pile of scripts for Van Damme, and then the other p scripts were like <laughs> in the corner. <laughs> right. And 52 Pickup was one of those. Wow. Uh, so I, I'm going to look up the name of this documentary because, you know, it's and it's kind of an inspirational documentary because they were these two guys yeah. from, from Israel or Palestine just came to America, no money, and... Bingo. So why why do you like uh, 2001 so much? Uh, it is a movie that is purely cinematic, meaning that you cannot see it on anything other than a large screen. Period. Um, it communicates things entirely visually. Well, it, I mean, as a kid, it was one of the first movies yeah. I remember watching. Wow. And it... And it has, I've never had, and this is before I actually saw the movie, obviously because it's the start. I've never had the experience of watching the intro to a movie, which I don't, again, it sounds bizarre, but I don't want to give it away. Before the credits come up, I was in tears. I could not believe the beauty and wonder of what I was watching. Well, that song is. Yeah, that, the music. The it's, theme, in, it's inconceivable. Uh, that you couldn't imagine that you would never, you, nobody would know that track without 2001. Well, the only way they would know that track parody, is if they follow the pro wrestler, Ric Flair, right? Who he's, I don't know if it was his manager or he just liked the movie and he thought, I want that to be my theme song. But like when he comes out in a wrestling uh, match uh -huh. and that song hits, it gives you chills. Right. Because you know he's about to walk out. And uh, which is, you wouldn't think the two worlds of a great movie like 2001 and pro wrestling would collide. But again, it's that interesting thing that music does uh, is that music and that music is capable of. I'm going to throw in a very controversial, if you're for all your British listeners here, there was a, one of my favorite quotes about music. And it speaks to the Alzo Sprach Zarathustra theme we're talking about by Richard Wagner, which introduces 2001 and Ric Flair, um, is uh, there's a very controversial com um, politician called Enoch Powell in the UK. And he, he gave this one of his famous or infamous for this speech he gave, and I think it was around about 1968, where he talked about allowing immigrants into the country and he quotes this speech by Julius Caesar about rivers of blood. And it's a Shakespearean quote. And it's fairly it's a fairly erudite quote, but it just became this rivers of blood quote. And he, and he became this almost an outcast. And he was a very odd figure in the sense that he was an anti-immigrant. He was perceived as anti-immigrant, which I think he, actually he was. But he was remarkably articulate in the sense of he could speak like eight languages, including Urdu and things like this. Right. He was not like your, get these fucking people out of here. You know, he was like, oh, I can put a very enlightened bigot. 
And there's a great interview with them once where they're talking about music and the, the interviewer says, so Enoch, um, uh, what do you do to relax? Do you ever listen to, like, what do you like listening to? Assuming that because of his profile, he's the type of guy that listens to classical music. So who's your favorite composer? That type of thing. And Enoch Powell turns to him and says, no, uh, I don't, I, I avoid music. He says, you avoid music? He goes, yes, I don't like to stir emotions that cannot be answered. And like his point being that he, un he knew the power of music. Right. And he purposely avoided it because he couldn't satisfy what it made arise in him. And I've always loved that quote because it speaks to the power of music at its best. Oh my God. At its best. Not some, your fucking indie band that your mate is in playing the harmonica down on Silver Lake. But I mean, like, you're, like at its best, it arouses emotions that you cannot control. Oh, it's a very, uh, music is. And that's why the Alzo Sprach Zarathustra, there's something primeval in that theme. What's the buildup? It's that and it's much parodied, in effect. If you listen to a lot of movie soundtracks, they basically use the same inclination right. to get to a different place. Well, it's like the perfect starts out where you barely hear it. Yeah. And then it just builds and builds and builds and builds. The build is amazing. And that's why it's funny when Ric Flair does it, because <laughs> he doesn't come out right away. Uh -huh. So you hear it. Like, you know, wrestling arena, it's pretty loud. And so there's like almost silence. Yeah. And then you, you kind of hear the horn. Duh, and then you see the curtain wiggling a oh. little bit. But he doesn't come out until the crescendo. And then the crowd just loses. Now, it. to bring that back, like going back to the um, the UK when I brought Doug over for the first time, 2002, we were in this tiny little basement called the Tron in Edinburgh. And it barely held a hundred for fire reasons. And officially it never held a hundred. Of course. But, um, and I would always insist, and <laughs> Doug, Doug, Doug found this vexatious, shall we say. I would always insist that Doug had to stand behind this tiny little, like, velvet shower curtain. <laughs> Where the audience could still see he was. Right. He, I mean, there was. It wasn't like a three-dimensional thing. It was just literally a shower curtain to the side of the, the stage, and because that's the magic of theatre and entertainment is that somebody can't step out unless they've been hidden. Right. And uh, and uh, it's very funny because it's come up in our conversations recently. But this element of theatre that needs to be present in all forms of entertainment is uh, remarkably indispensable. Oh, I love it. Like what, you know, I go to a lot of concerts and like, I love that moment where the, the house lights go down. Yes. Dark. And you kind of can see the band back yeah. there, but not really. And then they, it comes down the curtain mm -hmm. and it's, it's, 
it's, it's my favorite part of any concert I go to. Yeah. And sometimes when you, when you get these bands that are trying to be too cool for school and they all just wander on stage with no like acclaim or lighting or whatever, you kind of feel cheated. Because it's like, yeah. I, want an L- I want the theater. Well, like I just saw Weezer at the Forum. Uh-huh. and uh, You're always boasting. Well, they had almost like, not a see-through curtain, but like you could kind of see shadowy figures. <laughs> and, you know, you could see their stage was, uh, you know, their biggest song, I guess, is Buddy Holly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, the video was very famous uh, for parroting... Uh, uh, happy days episode yeah and you could kind of see the stage was the happy Days set but you couldn't right. really make it out and then they start the show with buddy holly which is kind of ballsy to start like, with your biggest song but i loved when the curtain came down and they're all in their happy days outfits and it was like wow this i love this and the crowd went bonkers uh so i like i wish more comics would you know if you're not it's not in your personality to like have this wild open, you know, I get it, but like, I wish there would be a little more of that reveal, uh, in a comedy show. Sure. But again, the good thing is, and is that it is possible to have a virtual reveal, which is you have a curtain, which is your personality or your, like one of the things that I really admire about Doug and it sounds like sucky uppy, but after all these years, I like how he comes out, and he'll fuck around. He'll do shit. He'll talk about things at the top of his head. Uh, he'll, you know, just be himself, which is what you're there to see. And um, and he regretfully eventually uh, retreats into, uh, as he sees it, I think, uh, into material. Right. But that that's a form of curtain. You know oh, what I mean? Sure. The, so you can, the audience can feel part of that. They can feel it all happening in an organic sense, you know? Uh, and I think that's important is that you're right, that comedians have that form of curtain. It doesn't need to be a physical one, right? but there's a, a form of reveal. Yeah. I mean, I want, you know, I put on a little bit more of a show than most comics just because, you know, it's expensive to go see a comedy show these yeah. days. It's, you know, two drink minimum, uh, you know, tickets are what they are. Even if you get in for free, it's still two drinks and dinner or whatever. I, I want the crowd to go, we want to see this guy again, and we would pay to see him again. Uh, and But I, what I like about Doug, though, is like he's himself. Joe's himself. Yeah. Like, I love the comics who are just themselves. Yeah. Uh, I don't like the – and, you know, it seems a lot of comics on TV are – they're just doing what they think is – what the crowd want i mean what okay this crowd likes clean humor i'm a dirty comic but i'm going to give them clean humor like i like the comics like doug or joe or uh bert kreischer or you know i mean there's a lot ari shafir is one who just jeselnik yeah jeselnik is okay this is a sensitive crowd fuck it you guys knew who who was on the bill yeah you're gonna get my humor um so what i love about jeselnik is after my roast battle with jimmy carr Oh, yeah. You know, there's a couple of people who didn't think I won that battle. Name them. Well, uh, I'm trying to get on Comedy Central again, so I can't. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, I, I started with him at open mics and stuff. And, you know, we, we like he's always been nice to me. But I guess you'd say we were acquaintances more than friends. And uh, he was talking to these two girls. And uh, 
I walked by him and he grabbed me by the arm and he said, congrats on beating Jimmy. And I'm like, well, a lot of people don't think I beat him. And he just looked at me and goes, nah, you beat him. And it was just, I felt like I'd been blessed by the Pope. Like, yeah, fuck it. I did beat him. Yeah. I don't know anyone who, I don't know anyone who doesn't think that. Oh, I know a few people, but I know, uh, I know, I know that those people exist. Well, I mean, you know, that was a tough, you know, not to talk about roast battle too much, but like, you know, they, and Jimmy Carr is like, you know, he's Jimmy Carr. Like he really needs no introduction, but I think they had wanted him to win. I'm sorry. I thought you were going to say he doesn't need any clipboard. Right. Oh, well, you know, that was part of my strategy. Uh, but you know, I understand that they wanted him to win the whole thing. Uh-huh. But, you know, when they offered me the job, I like, I did tell them, like, don't put me against people you want to see win. Because it's, you know, I'm very upset. I have obsessive compulsive. Mm-hmm. So if I'm battling you, let's just say in a weird Jeff Ross, hey, we want you to battle Brian Hennigan. Okay. I'm going to do so much research on you. Uh, I, I'm going to find out who you dated. I'm going to find out if you had an abortion 20 years ago. I'm going to interview the doctor. Wait, you're going to have to find out who I dated? You know who I dated. Well, but uh, there's other women. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Right. I mean, you know, see, that would be the easy way to just go to her. Right. Uh, give me the dirt on Brian. Uh-huh. I'm going to go to the girl before her. All right. By the way, her will be upset if you don't mention her. Well, can I? No, I, I, cause you guys are very friendly. Oh, we are very friendly. So, Wait, uh, okay. I'll tell you something. I, I can't disclose this. Okay. But there was somebody in the comedy universe, shall we say, who approached Julie Seaball. The great Julie Seaball. My ex. Who, and again, who I'm very friendly and I, I and I hope supportive of. Uh, and I think she's fairly supportive of me. I've never had any reason to think otherwise. Uh, uh, but somebody approached her, I won't say it's man or woman, and said, I think me and my ex, or me and my other, are splitting up. How do we become like you and Brian? In terms of being cordial with each yeah. other. Yeah. Well, cordial or friendly. Like, you know, and I, when, when Julie told me that, I was genuinely humbled. I honestly thought, wow. Because, uh, uh, honest truth, I don't think it was easy. No initial transition is. But um, it was uh, like, I would hope we're go- both good people. And, um, uh, I think that's what's important is yeah. that if you're both good people, you can. Uh, I'm friends with pretty much all my exes mm-hmm. uh, because we're, all, we're bo- in each case we're good people, mm-hmm. um, and even you know, in maybe the one situation where it's a little rocky, we're still both good people, and I'm hopeful that you know, good people will emerge. You know, I think, you know, I think it's like in comedy, if you're funny, you will make it. Yeah. What, I don't know what make it means. It's different for, you know, every person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, it, you know, in terms of uh, dealing with exes or, you know, bad splits, uh, if, if you're both good people, years later, months later, whenever, uh, it's, hey, let's talk, you know, but, you know, uh, you know, I certainly know other couples who, you know, maybe one at least wasn't a good person and they never talk again. 
Right. And it's no loss to either one of them. Indeed. Or maybe it is to the good person. You know, like, uh, you know, I... Well, the good person always feels like shit. I think if you're a human yeah. and you, you care about people, like I care what people think about me. Mm-hmm. If I've done anything right in, in 20 years of stand-up, which mm-hmm. I probably haven't done too much right, yeah, uh, is I don't have too many enemies. And I love that. It's not to say you have to be an ass kisser, but like even the people that don't think I'm funny like me. Yeah. And I love that. So. Which incidentally is part of the comedic talent in terms of um, like people come to see Doug and there's this awful thing where people will like tweet or, hey, I'm bringing my girlfriend. She can't wait to see how much she hates you. And because, you know, like some sort of bizarre act of bravado of like bringing someone who you're pretty sure is not going to like somebody's material. Right to a show but putting that aside um there's a there's a talent involved in developing a personality or developing a style of delivery or just being yourself so that people who don't like your act still want to have a drink with you yeah i mean i know it's probably a- whereas i i can think of several comedians who i think i've seen your act i really don't want to ever have a drink with you yeah, even though you think they're funny. Even though you think you're they're funny. Yeah, See, I'd like, rather be the opposite. Like, all right, we don't really know any of these bands Earl's talking about. It's not very funny to us, the rat joke. I, I don't know who rat is or whoever. This guy has a funny accent. Yeah. He's a nice guy, though. Let's go watch uh, something with him on the Comedy Store patio. Right, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, that's why I think even people who don't think Joe and Doug are funny. I mean, at some point, everyone, they're like, they're good people. Yes, exactly. And you they're know. fun to hang out with, which yeah, they are. Because they're good people. Yeah. Like, I'd rather hang out with someone. I mean, I think both are brilliant. So it, it's the best of both worlds to think they're both brilliant and are good people. But I'd rather hang out with a calm guy I don't think is funny, but I like them as a person. Mm-hmm. Versus yeah someone who's a great comic and there's plenty we both know that are great comics but just awful people i yeah you're yeah you're right maybe not i shouldn't say a lot oh, I, also again in the again in terms of a subset of an artistic division comedians versus anyone else less of them than any other artistic right. set like you'll find less shitty people as comedians than you'll find shitty people who are painters right. or shitty people who are architects i'm sorry if you're an architect but that's just the way things are well that's what i love about the comedy store specifically uh is that they seem to weed out the shitty people they do exist i suppose oh absolutely but like at the store if you're not a good person you get weeded out pretty fast yeah. because it's for lack of a better phrase it's a gang up there yeah and if you don't fit into that gang uh you know, you're just not accepted. And yeah. that's a hard place to navigate if you're not accepted up there. Mm. You know, and there's many big, not many, but there's a few pretty big name comics who don't go up there because it's just, they'll get called out on their bullshit. They can't park their cars. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's another thing. Do you know who <laughs> I am? I'm I'm friends with Martin Lawrence. Whoa. Oh, oh sorry, sorry, did I just say that? I'm sorry. There's an incident uh, 
couple nights ago. Mm. A member. No, it wasn't even the comic. It was a member of the posse who was like, I'm I'm friends with so-and-so. Can I park my car here? And the guy's like, no. And there was like this huge dust up. And so, but that's, I don't want to get sued here. It's but. just so bizarre in the sense that um, Doug and I have both been in situations which are kind of joyful where we've turned up at comedy clubs and people don't know who he is. Not, for, not who I am, who he is. Right. And we just paid our money and went in. But that's what I love. He didn't pull. He could probably go, I'm Doug Stanhope. Yeah. Do you know who I am? But he doesn't because he doesn't have to. Well, like, it's like pointless. It's like, why the fuck would you put yourself or anybody else in that position? It's just like, just fucking yeah. pay the money and go in. But yeah, if you have to go up to anyone and go, do you know who I am? Then you're not that big. You know. It's also just, yeah. It's well, paying your money is the cheapest thing to do. Yeah. But, you know, in the world we navigate, good luck with that. Earl, I think we've probably burnt out your bandwidth. Yeah, I was just going to say, I was going to get up and check where we're at in the tape. But, uh, Brian, tell us, we were almost at two hours. Holy monkeys! I literally thought this would be about 40 minutes. Yes, but you, just you based it purely on my personality. No, it's probably my poor interviewing skills but uh the name of that uh, documentary about canon films yes is electric boogaloo the wow. wild untold story of canon films that sounds very interesting so if you're uh, wondering why 52 pickup didn't make money uh what it's on netflix it's a story of uh Manahem golan and yoram globus they were great first blood rambo all those that was them oh that was them well, and then I want to recommend a documentary I've not even seen yet, but which was which was described to me in such precise detail I cannot imagine it's bad, and it's called Filmmaker. Have you heard of it? No. I think it's called Filmmaker, and it's you've seen. Have you seen Kubrick's Barry Lyndon? Yes. Right. The 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 son who exacts his revenge on Ryan. What's his name? Who's the actor? Ryan. Ryan Reynolds. No, in, in uh, Barry Lyndon. Hold on. Uh, We're drunk. Oh, sorry, I'm drunk. Um, Brian's drunk. I'm uh, experiencing withdrawals from caffeine right now, so okay. I'm a little off my uh, game. But um, so Keep talking. Uh, the, the, there's, there, you know, I think Barry Lyndon is Kubrick's... Is Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill. I think it's very odd because I said 2001 is my favorite movie, but I think Barry Lyndon is, is Kubrick's greatest film. But um, so Ryan O'Neill is the, is the, let's just call him the patriarch. And there's a son who's played by this actor who like eventually ends up confronting uh, Ryan O'Neill. Okay. And the actor that plays the son, basically on completion of uh, Barry Lyndon said to Kubrick, Hey, uh, I just want to come and work with you f forever for the rest of my life or something like that. He basically said, I don't, I, I'm giving up acting. I just want to work with you for you, whatever. Okay. So, um, that's what he did. And, uh, he basically became Kubrick's right hand guy, as I understand it from how this documentary is described to me. And the documentary is called Filmmaker. And it's just him talking about his or detailing his life with Kubrick. 
And it's just so interesting because he was a main guy in Barry Lyndon. Right. And he, after seeing how Kubrick worked, he just went, I see what you're trying to do. I want to come and help. Yeah, you think this guy would have... Yeah, he'd like, I'm going to become a star now. Well, that's saying it's uh, it, to kind of tie things up in the 50s to pick up bubble. Like, John Glover is like semi-retired in Frisco. Like, he, he's won Tony Awards on Broadway. Like, uh-huh. he's a legit actor. Have you ever thought of going up there? You know... I don't do mobile podcasts. I believe I did. I've done one with Rob Schneider the day Robin Williams died uh-huh. because uh, Rob and him were very good friends. And Rob said, Hey, I have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so I, I hastily put together a mobile. Uh, I, I, w- I would go up to San Francisco to interview him, she but did. I don't know how to do it to be. Like I said, I'm a one man soldier, Brian. The, the secret is, or not the secret, it's not a secret, put it out there, Twitter and Instagram. I have, I and it's it's funny, I, don't, I won't mention his name because, uh, you know, he, I, I don't know if he wants this kind of publicity, but I went to Notre Dame High School in the Valley. Uh, one of my uh, classmates uh, uh, knows John Glover oh. uh, through a certain route, and uh, I, I put it out there on Twitter, just no one's yeah. good, because John Glover's not on Twitter. And he, he, this classmate from Notre Dame High said, oh, I know John. He's retired, uh, semi-retired in San Francisco. Uh, and so, you know, who knows? You know, I get told no a lot, Brian, by mm-hmm. people. That's why I'm your guest today. Yeah, because <laughs> 15 people said no. And I exactly. thought, well, Brian lives nearby. He lives nearby. Well, the way I do it is people have to come to me. Yeah, like, he'll be know, like... Well, I would love to interview Doug, but he would probably go, who the hell's that guy? Uh, I have to go to his house. I'm good. Uh, no, no. He, 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 you know, again, if, he, if Doug was in LA, you'd have to go to him. But you, do you ever play Tucson or anything? Um, I'm not saying I wouldn't, but... You uh, play Tucson. I, I would, uh, but... Uh, we have but, no connections because Doug's banned from the club there. But, good for uh, him. But, I love it. But... um. Yeah, you, you could play two songs. I should learn how to go mobile because yeah. I think I you could. You should. I, I, would, I, I could go to Doug, I, I, and I think we would. Uh, you should though, totally learn how to go mobile. I know. I, it's not that I'm lazy. I just, I love having people, like I loved doing this today. We sat right. on the couch. We're friends. So it's a little easier than yeah. I don't know the person. But we're both standing right now. Right. <laughs> I love how we said we're going <laughs> to. In the in the podcast ten minutes ago, and now we got into uh, where John Glover's residence okay, is. Right, okay, wrap so, it up. One, I'm trying, but you keep talking, which is great. Whoa. Sorry, I came in hot there. And by no, the way, uh, I'd like to plug, even though I have a little bit of turmoil with the world of roast battle. Julie Seba wrote the definitive book on roast battle. Um, it's, she did. It's like a roast. I, you know, I, I at one point was so angry uh, with certain things. I asked for my name to be taken out of the book, and Julie said, "I can't do that." Uh, That's was, very good of her. Well, I think she she could have, but she's like Earl. Just no, take but, a no, deep but, breath. No, I know, but exactly, exactly. What she was saying was take a deep breath. And I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm. Uh, anyway, go on Amazon to show you. Uh, I don't hold grudges. Uh, this spot podcast is sponsored sponsored by the Roast Julie Battle po- book on Roast Battle. It's the definitive coffee table book with great pictures by the amazing Troy Conrad. 
who is sickeningly talented. He makes me look so good with no makeup and hair. Troy Conrad took the photos. Julie Seba interviewed all the main players of Roast Battle. So go on Amazon, I believe, you can buy the book. And uh, Brian, where can people find you on At Twitter? Mr. Hennigan and on both Instagram. You better spell that for my fans. M-R-H-E-N-N-I-G-A-N. And uh, he doesn't need you to follow him, but Brian's one of the truly great people in co- not just L.A. comedy, but uh, for what he does uh, for comedy in general is is really just follow him, become a fan of his. Doug Stanhope's like the the benchmark for how all comics should act with Joe Rogan and, and a few others. So they're proof that you can be nice, you can do your thing without... Uh, catering to outside interest if you're funny you can do your own thing inappropriate earls number three on itunes comedy because i'm doing my own thing exactly been turned down by every network every tv show every comedy festival but i'm coming at the world of comedy rogan and stanhope style just be funny and be likable and you can do a podcast out of your house (laughs) 